0: Welcome back to Experts Only. I'm your host, John Powers. I'm the co-founder of Clean Capital and served as President Obama's Chief Sustainability Officer. On this podcast, we explore solutions to climate change by talking to industry leaders about the intersection of energy, innovation, and finance. You can get more episodes at cleancapital.com. Welcome back to Experts Only. Today, we are really holding forth an annual tradition of talking to Lisa Jacobson and Ethan Zindler about the BCSC Sustainable Energy in America 2022 Factbook. This is put out every year by Bloomberg NEF, which Ethan represents, and and the Business Council for Sustainable Energy, which Lisa leads. And the Factbook is the go-to guide on what is going on for data in our industry. It really highlights the trends from everything to solar and wind installations to jobs, to EVs, to electric vehicles, energy efficiency, carbon trends. There's so much amazing data in there. Those facts are driven specifically to help us tell a story of what our industry is doing. So what you're gonna find from this year's fact book is sort of despite COVID in the pandemic, 2021 was an unbelievable record-breaking year in the energy transition and the deployment of renewable energies, deployment of storage and sustainability overall. You can get the fact book at bcse.org. That's bcse.org. And you can always get more episodes at cleancapital.com. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Lisa and Ethan, thanks so much for joining me again at Experts Only. Thanks for having us. Yeah, it's great to be with you, John. I love the fact this is becoming an annual tradition and really the Sustainable Energy in America fact book is becoming the go to. I was just mentioning this before we started talking the go to database for information about the growing momentum behind our industry. Can you talk for a second about really how you guys came up with this idea and sort of the history of the Factbook?
1: Sure. And again, John, it is great to be with you. And Ethan, it is always great to be with you. Funny you should mention that because this is actually the 10th issue of the Sustainable Energy wow. in America Factbook. And As I was preparing for our release just last week, I was looking through some old photos and, you know, it not only has the industry changed, we've all changed, but of course we look better and, you know, great and all that. But no, um, we started this as we were thinking about our 20th anniversary as an organization. Actually, this is our 30th anniversary for the BCSE this year. And we were sitting around our board table and we had invited Ethan Zindler to come and talk to us about some of the trends he was seeing in the sectors we represent. And we realized we were on the cusp of a very fast moving change. And we really wanted to have a set of data that would put all of our industries together and track our progress all together, not just individual sector market reports, but let's have a place where that information can be brought together in one place. It could probably be more up to date than other sources and it would be objective. So that was our goal. And, right. and that's what we've been doing each year since.
0: Ethan, can you talk for a second about sort of the growth of Bloomberg New Energy Finance, now Bloomberg NEF, and you know why You know, the Business Council for Sustainable Energy has done such a great job of telling the story behind these trends. You guys really do house that data. So for folks that aren't aware of the work that you're doing, you just talk for a second about the work you're doing.
2: Sure. So first, John, thanks for having us again. This has been a, a nice annual tradition, so we really appreciate that. And second, thanks, of course, Lisa and to the Business Council for supporting this project. What Bloomberg NEF is, we're a division of Bloomberg that provides research on the transition to a lower carbon economy, sort of writ large, with a real emphasis on energy. There's about 250 of us in a about 16, 17,000 person company, now, but we're just focused on, on these issues. So it has been a great natural fit in terms of working with Lisa. And what we like to think of as the goal of this fact book is to try to bring some facts to the conversation, particularly here in Washington, where sometimes those are lacking about the state of the energy transition. And was, as we always like to say that if you don't know, for instance, the price of solar within the last you know six months, then you don't know the price of solar. And the same can be true as you know about batteries and wind turbines and other things as well. So the idea is really bringing key current actionable data to policymakers.
0: And Lisa, if you, your organization really brings some unique messengers to Washington to t- help tell the story of these trends and help drive policy. Can you just paint a picture of what the Business Council for Sustainable Energy is and who some of your members are?
1: Sure. So we're a very broad-based energy trade association. And our core sectors of focus have been largely around commercially available technologies, so energy efficiency, natural gas, renewable energy. But when you look at the industries we work with today, and it very much mirrors the marketplace, these are highly integrated industries, and they span all segments of the economy. And they represent not only commercially available, like I mentioned, but also deep decarbonization technologies. So certainly many in the sustainable transportation space, hydrogen, carbon capture, utilization and storage, you know, and and things that are really optimizing our energy system. So it's a very diverse group, but they're united around the vision that we can have a sustainable energy future. And for them, that means affordable, reliable, clean energy. And we can do it and meet our near-term and long-term greenhouse gas emissions goals. And while we're doing it, we're gonna create even more jobs than we have. We have over 3 million jobs in the US right now represented by efficiency, renewables, natural gas, and clean generation. And we, we know that those sectors are expanding. And we know that the job opportunities will expand with them.
0: Yeah, I think that's a story that needs to be told over and over again, because folks don't, they underestimate the number of jobs the clean energy industry has. And, you know, when you're talking about 3 million jobs, the impact of that is not just in Washington, but all across places like rural America, where folks are working on wind farms or doing energy efficiency projects or putting solar in places like Western New York. So... I want to talk through some of the really exciting trends that sort of came out of this fact book around emissions and the changes of the grid, electric vehicles, and investing. You know, overall, I think the fact book really provides just valuable year over year data. And I think despite the pandemic, 2021 was really a record breaking year on many different levels. I'm going to start off with a negative one, and then we'll get into the positive mm-hmm. ones. Does that sound good? And the negative one, I'm going to go out and I'm actually going to pull a quote from Ethan's from last year's interview because you actually forecasted this right on and you said look looking out from 2020 it's going to be you know me use your your words here super weird <laughs> And we all know that 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 year was super weird but emissions fell almost 10% in that period because of the massive shifts in the economy and you you called it and said you know if we don't end up seeing a year over year increase in co2 emissions um, next round, that something bigger is happening. Some more negative trend is happening. Well, we saw that increase, I think it's around 5%, right? Year over year, this time around. Can you talk about sort of what drove that this time? And is that something that people should be wildly concerned about? Or is that a more natural trend because the economy got rolling again?
2: It's really about an economy that's, that just started to come back to life and, and posted some pretty strong growth last year. 5.8% was the year-on-year uptick of total CO2 emissions. But uh, leading the way in terms of driving that was the transportation sector, and that was really a reflection of the fact that like we just all, many of us stayed home in 2020, um, if we could, and air travel fell very dramatically in 2020. Both commuting and air travel rebounded, let's be clear, not all the way back to where they were, but definitely rebounded in 2021, and that definitely drove emissions back up. The other thing is actually, though, power sector CO2 emissions rose a bit, and uh, interestingly enough, while we saw a record amount of generation produced from renewables overall, we saw a bit of a decline in production from hydro plants, and we definitely saw a rebound in production from coal-fired power plants. Natural gas prices rose last year, and that really shifted some of the dynamics in the market. Our view is that that's not a long-term trend, but that was yeah. certainly something we saw last year. And then one last thing I would just note very importantly is that at the end of the day, we're still about 4.5% lower in terms of CO2 emissions from where we were in 2019. So that I think that are two that's very, very, yeah. very weird years.
0: Right. What's driving the hydro trend?
2: So, you know, this is maybe one of the offshoots of climate change is that dry conditions in the West resulted in lower total output from hydro last year. It probably will come back, but nonetheless, like, you know, there are issues related to climate change and the impact that it can have on hydro production.
0: Yeah. So let, let's focus on the grid for, for, for a second, because as, as you both know, we are witnessing, you know, once in a generational shift to a clean energy, uh, grid and a a grid that's having to shift in, you know, almost state by state and how it's approaching its business models. But, you know, some of the, the, the broader trends of what's coming onto that grid are really exciting. You know, developers built a record 37 gigawatts of wind and solar, uh, solar last year, even despite of the, uh, despite COVID, you know, what do you see um, specifically in those two sectors first in the wind and solar sector looking going forward? Um, and then we can sort of talk about some of the other sectors as well. Maybe I'll start
1: at the highest level um, and let Ethan come in with some of the more detail. but you know what I see underpinning a great deal of that is demand, right Demand. Demand from large corporates, uh, demand from households. Um, demands from communities that want clean energy and they also want resilient energy. And we would be remiss talking about this topic in this week and not acknowledging the security benefits of clean energy. So demand is strong, even in two very odd years. Um, you know, we could talk a little bit more about why that demand is so strong, especially from the corporate sector but just at the highest level, I mean, I, I think it really is an absorption of the commitment to sustainability by large companies and the accountability and investor interest in the areas of environment, social, um, and governance investing, among others.
0: Yeah, could we talk about that demand for a second? Because I think one of the really interesting things in the back book points out is now there's over 351 companies that have pledged 100% clean energy goals, um, that is pretty monumental, uh, and almost changing by the quarter as more come on. And, and Lisa, how are your members thinking about that and then thinking about executing on it?
1: Well, they take it very seriously, and, and they take it in multiple ways. But you know, the clearest way is for themselves. They've adopted these kinds of, of, of objectives as a company. And then they are deepening that and they're working within their supply chains to ensure that their supply chain has also adopted those objectives. And they've really shifted from first initial, kind of similar to the way our national policies have been evolving. You know, it started say 10, 15 years ago with incremental goals. And now they're really focused either on science-based targets and or net zero targets. And they're both short term and long term. So they're like, what are we going to do in the next 10 or 15 years? And then what are we going to do to meet the challenges of what the scientific community says we need to do by 2050. So it is deepening, it is serious. And now there's many more accountability mechanisms in particular in the investment community to hold them to action, not just proclamations.
0: Right. Right. So taking the supply chain piece for a second, Ethan. Oh, sorry. You have a point to me?
1: Well, I just want to add one quick thing
2: on corporate procurement. And it, it's yeah. a slightly more technical thing, but I think it relates a little bit back also to what Lisa was saying around energy security issues and reliability. Um, you know, we, we did see a record volume of power purchase agreements signed by large corporate buyers last year. Um, those are long term contracts that are typically, you know, over 10 years long in which the uh, buyer used to buy power at a fixed, essentially fixed, but maybe slightly rising price uh, over a future number of years. And, um, you know, those contracts are frankly, in many cases, I think probably looking better and better um, now that we've seen natural gas prices rise and seen the the kind of volatility that you can see in the wholesale power markets overall. So, you know, one added benefit, that we've talked about sort of theoretically in the past was oh, you you get rid of the volatility, you lock in a price. And it was kind of theoretical because actually all power was cheap as of a couple of years ago, or even last year, that's changed. And so these contracts are looking better and better now.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, someone who just paid, you know, almost four thirty at the pump this morning uh, it's going to be a wild ride here for the next, next, uh, at least, Short-term window, but so I want to take the supply chain piece for a second, Ethan, and, and take it in a different direction. And looking at the growth we're seeing for for solar for wind, the supply chains for those industries and all industries right now are uh, under pressure, a lot of pressure for specifically for steel or for panels on the solar side, coming from some specific places in Asia. That's causing a lot of uh, anxiety of the industry. You know, how do you see those supply chain challenges? playing out into next year's uh, fact book?
2: A good question. So, um, I mean, in the short run, we have seen an uptick in the price of solar modules and in the, uh, anecdotally in the price around batteries as well. Um, I think the good news, particularly in the case of solar, is the equipment now represents a minority of the final cost of building a solar project. And so the, right. the ultimate impact has been sort of muted. In terms of the more fundamental question about just actually getting access to stuff, um, uh, you know, our view is we don't think that that's going to be a major problem uh, overall, That a lot of these short-term um, uh, bottleneck things are, in fact, that short-term and that they'll be um, solved. There is also a heck of a lot of, particularly solar and batteries, to to degree, heck of a lot of additional manufacturing capacity that is being built. Sadly, a lot of it is not taking place in the United States, um, but nonetheless there is a certain um, motive uh, for exporters of that equipment to want to get it here. And suddenly the, you know, the US has become one of the major demand markets for solar. We frankly, we, we weren't you know, right. five or 10 years ago. We're definitely near the top tier now.
0: It'll be interesting to see if we get direct pay, if that affects US manufacturing when more folks will almost need that to be able to take that credit, right? and Start to drive some of that demand here at home.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that's something that certainly manufacturers are looking for is a little bit more market certainty. And I think that policy, like as you say, direct pay so that um, so that people can take the value of these tax credits in cash and faster, essentially, that could help. Um, I will say this, I do think that there is some in, there is some greater, greater confidence on the part of manufacturers that this is going to be a real market anyway, because you just look at the volumes right. last year, 37 gigawatts, demands a lot, and about two-thirds of that was solar. So there's, there's some growing confidence there, but we still haven't seen the kind of major manufacturing scale up domestically that I think a lot of people would like to see uh, over the long-term.
0: In batteries as well. I mean, we are seeing supply chain challenges in batteries overall. And I think the, the demand for batteries is, is, as you guys point out, it's forty four point two gigawatts of battery storage capacity was added to the grid in 2021. That's that's incredible. Uh, and you know the, the hunger for investing in battery Batteries, one, and then two, as, as Lisa, you pointed out, the resiliency and energy security piece that Batteries is bringing into the conversation will just accelerate um, the demand here, I think, in that space as well. So last time we talked, it was right after the Super Bowl. Uh, will Farrell did an EV commercial, right? When he uh, was uh, making fun of the, the Swedes, right? Is that what it was? I can't remember exactly how the ad played out. But the whole trend of electric vehicles this year has been an incredible shift where you have Ford, GM, other car manufacturers who really were almost in a backseat on this, letting Tesla take the run, um, are really starting to step forward. And as you, you guys pointed out, you know, U.S. sales hit. Um, they're closing in on a, a million units a year, but it's about six, over 650,000 units in 2021. And with the infrastructure money now being poured into electric vehicle infrastructure, uh, really for the first time at the federal level, how do you see uh, the electric vehicle demand changing uh, over the next, over the next year? Lisa, do you want to go first on that or do you want me to jump in?
1: Well, I mean, I I can speak more from, you know, just kind of my vantage point working with the companies and working with policymakers, but Ethan can give you the, the data. I mean, yeah, I think there's a sea change underway. I mean, just the amount of questions you get about, what is an electric vehicle? How do I get one? I mean, you know, we're all getting this on the street. You're talking to your neighbors, you know, it's in, and and you know what's driving it? And I remember thinking about this for other industries. If they are spending money on these commercials, that's what's going to impact things. I mean, think about how many, um, I, I mean, I don't wanna use brands, but okay, iPhone um, or Samsung phone commercials you see on a given day, right? Yeah. We probably, if you watch TV, you probably see at least 10. And then you put cars in there and then you put the proportion of electric vehicles or other clean energy vehicles in the mix and the public is absorbing it. And that's the pivot moment when, you know, there's more offerings when you go to look for a car, it's in the mainstream chatter, and then there's this little bit of wow factor. What really is that? Can it work for me? Is it better than what I have? And look at that, you know, that shiny object effect is coming coming into a clearer focus, but not just for the Tesla owner, right? right. You know, that is a, a market that is a luxury market. And that's not gonna bring us to where we need to be to get the, the kind of penetration and, and purchasing. From consumers, we have to have a much broader suite of offerings, and we're getting there. I think Ethan wants to hop in now too. Yeah,
2: yeah. I would just I would echo that. I mean, look, the buying of a car is not a fully economically rational process for consumers. There's a lot of emotion for sure. involved in that. To be to be clear, and to sort of echo as someone systems, who drives a minivan that feels actually pretty rational actually um, um, i don't actually maybe there was some emotion involved but i don't really want to know what it there was there was lots
0: of emotion involved that day <laughs> it's probably some tears uh,
2: <laughs> <laughs> um, but i guess you know look if you, if you look at that 650 or thousand or so um evs that were sold last year half were teslas Right. Um, and yeah. then if you look at the other half, you know, I'm looking at the half But those are
0: Teslas. Half, half of that. Or, half
2: were wow. Teslas. And then a couple of the other names on the list are, are Volvo and BMW. Um, yep. And so, you know, the point being right now, this is a, uh, a, a that a lot of that is the luxury segment of the market or, and or people who are committed to wanting to go electric. And that's great. Um, uh, the economics of buying an EV. Already makes sense for anybody who wants to sit down and do a total cost of ownership analysis and understand that the price of filling your tank Especially is today. more expensive, right? And so, and those are economics are just getting like way better. right right now, gasoline is over six bucks in some parts of the country, right?
1: right? So
2: the question I think we 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 are curious about, and really was just debating with my team, is you know what's the point at which consumers are going to make decisions to buy EVs based on economics and um, and, or what's the point at which economics and sort of emotional uh, decision-making intersects. And maybe we've reached that point, you know, cause there's nothing more in your face as you noted uh, there's no energy metric more in your face than the price of gasoline. Nothing comes close. And we've seen people take to the streets in France and elsewhere and protest. And like, it will really motivate people. If it can motivate people to like riot and protest, then maybe it might you know, motivate people to like figure out how much they're going to save by buying an EV over the course of the lifetime and make that decision this year. So we're quite, we were quite bullish about EVs anyway. We thought the market is going to double in the U.S. anyway, and now gasoline prices have gone through the roof, so it's quite possible that we'll be wrong on the low side.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's a series of micro, macro trends, as you said, Lisa, the cultural shift, and you're seeing that the ads, the, the price of gasoline because of what's going on in Russia, which will not change dramatically for a while, but as well as the money going into the infrastructure, people will no longer question where they're going to be fill, charging these things, and I think when people are now can get an F-150, right, that's electric, you know, they may be having second conversations about it. And then, you know, Lisa, looking at the companies you work with, they're massive fleets. Those, those shifts are underway as well. Can you talk about some of the things you're seeing from your members?
1: Right. I mean, we talked about renewable energy commitments, but it's, there's energy efficiency commitments. There's um, electric fleet commitments, and those all increased in 2021 as well, Um so I think what I hear mostly though, because given the configuration of our members is the integration between buildings, the grid and transportation oh, interesting. and then yeah. how they're all going to be optimized because a lot of our members, you know, whether they, you know, be a large ESCO or a utility or, you know, commercial building owners, you know, they, they all realize that. They're going to need to provide these kinds of services, and that they're going to need to be able to do it in an efficient and integrated way. So there's a lot of conversation about how to get that done.
0: Exciting, exciting. So I want to the last big trend I want to hit on and then sort of open it up is 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 the investing space. You know, clean capital obviously is in the investing space, and we see this every day in the market where it is getting uh, significantly more competitive for, because there's so much capital flowing because of some of the ESG demands, but also because this is a proven asset class now in terms of clean energy, and, and it's really starting starting to take off. You know, we saw, I think record numbers of, uh, of cap, record number of capital moving into the space. And just to quote uh, 105 billion in new capital went into the U.S. into in, in new U.S. energy assets last year. Um, Ethan, can you talk about what that looks like over the previous year? And then you know what you think we may be looking at next year.
2: Yeah, so it's a it's a it's it was just an amazing year. I mean, you know, Bloomberg NEF we got our start and are probably best known for tracking the investment figures all the way back to 2005 and 2006. And I've been around long enough to remember the heydays of venture capital. I think you were too, John, in 2007 through nine, and and like this just blew everything away in terms of the total value. So three quarters of a trillion dollars, roughly globally just for clean energy assets. That's stuff, that's projects, you know, wow. that generate power or batteries, um, hardware basically. That does not include, by the way, another 150 billion or so in money that was raised over for venture private equity and venture capital and the, and, and very importantly over the stock market via um, IPOs and what are called SPAC, these special purpose offerings. So there was just a lot, a lot of money raised last year, and you know, I think our view is, you know, not everybody's going to make the kind of returns that they, you know, expect. That's just realistic. Um, but in the grand scheme of things, of yeah. course, as somebody who wants to see these technologies continue to make progress and the cost to come down, I think it's fantastic. We're going to. There's been enough money raised to test new technologies at some some scale that we haven't been able to do to scale up. There's a number of new EV equipment makers that want to make new cars. We're going to see whether they can pull that off. There's just going to be a lot of um, there's going to be a lot of experimentation that has been funded, and you know, not everyone's going to make money. But the good news is, I think out of that kind of chaos, we're probably going to continue to make real, real progress. And then, if you add on to that, the fact that the federal government has basically put 80 billion dollars on the table in research and development funding over the next 10 years or so. Um, you really have a position where the us can take a very forward look in terms of trying to develop these technologies. It's a, i think it's a very exciting time as a result of all
0: of that. i'm going to forecast i'm going to ask you to look back almost 10 years ago to i don't know if you can pull that number but the the before i ask that question you know we know to solve the climate crisis and keep ourselves under 2 degrees we've got to have almost a trillion dollars a year uh, invested into clean energy you know we are closing in on that as you as you mentioned it was around three quarters of a trillion this time around, uh, not to mention, you know, the other uh, sort of venture side of it, which is, as you mentioned, if you, we've if to talk about climate tech, we could talk about that all day because that is the hottest market out there. People shifting from FinTech and other assets into it. But for, to, to you know, if, if we looked back a decade, when you first started doing this, you know, paint a picture of what it looked like then to where we are today. Um, and if you don't have the exact numbers in front of you, sorry, feel free to, well, so the, just don't I just paint a picture.
2: No, I thank you for the for both the articulate and somewhat long question, which gave me the chance to pull <laughs> <Yeah>. the slide. <laughs> um, the answer is we were at about two hundred billion globally um, in two thousand, about that in two thousand ten. So we've more than tripled overall. Again, um, we just think about the asset financing side of things um, globally. So in uh, fact, almost quadrupled. So um, look, we've come a, we've come a long, long way. The um, but there's there's still definitely much further to go um uh just to take an example in terms of you know the, the money is one thing to count the other thing is like stuff that gets built so again we counted about 37 gigawatts of wind and solar that needs to get that got built right. in the us if you want to get to an actual zero carbon power sector by 2035 which is what the Biden administration's aiming for, that That build level's got to double. And that's not about wow. doubling the amount of money because, you know, the cost of the equipment gets cheaper, but it is about doubling the amount of stuff you put in the ground.
0: Right. Um, Lisa, if, you, you know, if you're if you a reader getting in this fact book for the first time um, or you've read it, let me change the question. If you if you're, have read it in the past, what surprises you most about the 2022 fact book as you're reading it?
1: You know, one of the benchmark stats that we have relates to proportional consumer spending on a household basis on energy costs. Um, obviously, this year, the year we're in right now, 2022, we are facing inflation across the board and elevated energy costs that won't be factored in to this. But I still think the benchmark is extremely significant. It basically shows that you know over the last. 15 years, we've basically been paying less than 5% proportionally of our household budgets on energy costs. And that is much lower than in other countries. So this, we obviously know, you know, our um, industrial power prices, wholesale power prices are lower than in many other competing countries. And that's good for our economic competitiveness, but also on a household basis you know, we are keeping our energy costs low and that, that's fundamental to the energy transition. I think that's why we've been able to achieve what we have with the energy transition and the emissions reductions to date. So it's both a good news story, but maybe a cautionary tale as well, because we've got to, in some cases, quadruple what we've done over the last decade to meet our targets. But if we can't keep it affordable, it's not gonna happen. So in this moment of crisis that we're in with energy market disruptions, how are we going to manage that? I don't necessarily have the answer because we're living it in real right. time. But I, I think it's been fundamental that, generally speaking, on a national basis, you know, energy costs have remained relatively low. And that's enabled us to continue to um, enable the public to allow us to make the energy transition we've been making.
0: Yeah, I think we're going to see some uh, significant shifts this year between obviously, as you mentioned, energy pricing that is changing dynam- dynamically. We'll begin to, begin to see the trickle of the infrastructure money coming out, and if all goes well, maybe a climate bill even passed in Congress to give us things like tax credits. So when when we when we have this conversation a year from now in twenty twenty three, God forbid, we're not in World War three at that point. Um, what does, you know, what, what does the fact book look like, you know, a year out and I'll hold you to this a year from now. So just, just questioning, (laughs) maybe I'll start with, you
1: you know, pick up on what you said. I mean, I will be the optimist here for, you know, at least the the next year, Uh, those tax credits and the, the climate and uh, clean energy and energy efficiency tax provisions that were included in the build back better proposal. Those are fundamental because I think that's the best chance we have as kind of a national energy strategy. That's been what our national energy policy has been. It has been these clean right. energy tax credits for over a decade. They have bipartisan support. And you know uh, there are other mechanisms we could adopt, but I think that's the most likely one. And so I, I think it's it's incumbent upon the administration and Congress to get that done.
0: I couldn't agree with you more. Ethan? I
2: I mean, I would agree. I think we'll probably, I mean, the only of policy announcement I might make is I do think we'll probably see some kind of extension of the tax credits. I hope it's not just a modest middle of the night, December 31st, like, you know, got to get it done one year kind of deal. Right. We've seen a number of times in the past. I'm hoping it's part of some real legislation that thinks longer term. Let's hope for that. Um, I think the other thing that I will be certainly, I, I'm just generally intrigued by is that on the wholesale side of things, natural gas prices are up and natural gas prices within the power sector just define and drive a whole lot of different things. And uh, last year, they helped, we, we saw you know, the most surprising thing back to your earlier question to me was just how much coal rebounded in 2021. Although to be clear, the production was still up below 2019 levels. Um, and um, but I think that uh, we'll see that continue. We think coal will continue to go down. We think that renewables, the stuff that's all that stuff that's gotten built, you know, over the course of last year, including a lot of it in the fourth quarter of last year, makes more contributions into this year. That puts pressure on the market, including on coal. I think that's all a good thing overall. So we think there'll be continued decarbonization of the power sector. But it's a very different environment now. If you have higher gas prices than what we were three or four years ago um overall and then um and then the last thing just overall just i would just say is that uh it is interesting to see energy issues right smack dab to the middle of the political discussion in a way that we had not seen before and that's because prices are up and so how res, you know how this all reverberates through the midterm elections how this plays out how how consumers react to six dollar gasoline in some cases um, you know, these are really big questions and, um, and and I don't know the answer, but I think it's a huge wild card that we've not had to deal with before in the sector.
0: Yeah, Ethan, I couldn't agree with you more. And Lisa, I, do, I want to ask you, with that being in the front burner of everyone's conversation right now, not expected to change dramatically anytime soon, do you think that will drive any uh, movement out of Joe Manchin and others in Congress to, to try to get something done here to affect it, to make it look like they're making progress?
1: Yeah. Um... I I think the I, I certainly would never claim to speak for Senator Manchin or
0: sure, but I, I let, think let me take Manchin off the table. One, from Washington. Yeah, <laughs> one observation,
1: even though I think this would apply to his leadership of the Senate Energy Committee. I think he knows in his gut what he wants. I think he knows what his his lane is in terms of the policies that he appreciates in the sector and that he would support. Yeah. And I think that's generally consistent with what you know we've been talking about, these climate and, and energy provisions. We're in a moment of crisis though. So everything is kind of upended and, and uncertain in terms of how Congress will be able to function. Very good news that just yesterday, they passed in the House the omnibus appropriations bill. So that means that appropriations for the current year are hopefully now done so Congress can focus on other things. But, um, you know, we certainly have been making the case that, and I, I believe that the, the leadership um, generally on both sides believes this, that for the most part, clean energy is very beneficial to our national security. And that we have, um, you know, as Ethan was saying earlier, you know, energy efficiency. I mean, that's how you mitigate these volatile um, pricing situations. And, and looking at other opportunities at the utility level utility scale level to manage cost and clean energy offers that it's critical so and then we're doing it in a way which is you know kind of a very market based way through the tax code so right. I, I think there's there's a lot there that still makes a tremendous amount of sense we just not need to be able to get congress and the administration at a crisis moment to be able to focus on just passing these things
2: i'll just add one really really dumb observation which is just that it did seem like the build back better conversation was over and it was unclear kind of what was going to happen and we hadn't really heard all that much and then all of a sudden we've had the Russia thing the gas prices and oil prices have gone through the roof and suddenly Manchin's very motivated to do something and um, I think that that overall, is, is probably a good thing, um, and uh, in terms yeah. of politically, obviously a horrible thing. In terms of what's happening in the world, but you know, but uh, but it did seem like nothing was happening, and now there's conversations going on. And again, I'm not close to Absolutely. It, so it could be, you know, it could be I, I didn't know what was going on all along, but it's now people are talking about actual legislation and making proposals, which is feels like a little bit of
0: progress. Yeah, no, I think the momentum is starting to shift, and I feel like to, to really for us to make the argument. The facts are critical and the sustainable energy in America 2022 fact book is something all of us that care about this industry should should, should read and understand. You can get it at bcse.org um, and make sure you download it. Um, but we should all be making the case right now for the policies that we care about. to if we're going to really drive it forward, there's really no no better time. Uh, thank you, Lisa and Ethan, for all your hard work uh, every year putting this out. And, and And I hope to be back next year helping to tell the story.
2: Thank you. John, thanks.
0: Yeah, and thank you for the teams at Bloomberg NEF and BCSC for helping to put this together and our producer Colleen Young for, for the show. You can always get more episodes at cleancapital.com. Again, you can get the facts book at bcsc.org. Uh, you should also sign up to be a member if you're not. And uh, I wanted to thank you. thank you so much and look forward to continuing the conversation.